Please turn with me in your Bibles to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 7. This morning we'll be looking at verses 14 through 24. This is God's word, his inerrant word. Please give it your attention. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Honestly, I can't think of a much more relevant passage to be looking at this week particularly this verse. How do we judge with right judgment and not by appearances? Of course, the George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin case this week has raised this question in a very significant way for our culture. In that case, the jurors were asked to determine whether a white man killed a young black man innocently in self-defense or maliciously due to racism. And the verdict has stirred up a lot of very, very hard feelings and has opened a lot of old wounds. As I've been reading and listening and observing the reaction of people throughout our culture to this important case, I think, I've noticed how a person's background and experiences has affected the way that they respond. Those who have encountered racism to the least amount have tended to support the verdict and called it just. Those who have encountered racism to a great degree have tended to call it an injustice and express outrage. And I'm not trying to express which one is right. To some, see, they, they see this as an act of great injustice, but to me, I think it shows us the limit of human justice, the limit of a human judicial system, because at least based upon the facts that were presented at the trial, we can't know what was in George Zimmerman's heart. We don't know if he was a racist or not. We don't know what motivated him to do what he did. And so, therefore, it's difficult 
to come up with a truly right judgment. Reminds me of a video that I saw. A uh, news crew went out to a city park, and they brought with them, with their cameras, they also brought with them three actors. The first actor, well, the, the, the idea of the setup was that each of these three persons would try to, they, would, they, they attached a bike with a chain lock to a sign in the middle of the park. And each one of the actors would take a saw and some cutters and try to saw or cut through the chain to, in order to steal the bike. While it is in broad daylight, while people are driving by, walking by, running by the whole time. The first actor was a young white man wearing a large T-shirt and a hat he was wearing backwards. And while he's sawing on the chain and cut, trying to cut it, people are walking by and a number of them, they showed video of a number of them actually asking what he's doing or whether he needed, what, what was the problem. And he was told by the news crew to tell the truth. This is not my bike. They said about 100 people went by in an hour and only one person out of that 100 tried to stop him. Secondly, they had a young black man dressed almost the same way, large t-shirt, hat backwards. He tried to cut the chain to take the bike. People asked him what he was doing. He admitted he, it wasn't his bike. Immediately, within seconds, they said, he was surrounded by people challenging him, yelling at him, calling the cops, and several of them physically tried to stop him. One man tried to even steal his tool, take his tools, so he couldn't do it. Now, that was revelatory and interesting enough, but then the third actor or actress was a young woman, beautiful young woman, dressed nicely. She started sawing on the chain and cutting the chain. They said in the hour they watched, not only did nobody challenge her, nobody tried to stop her, several people, and they showed video of it, actually asked her if she needed help. <laughs> now, you can call that profiling. You can call that racism. And I don't know. I'm not God. God, I can't judge hearts. But there's very real possibility there was racism involved in that. But what it illustrates really is that we all make decisions every day based upon our background and our experiences. And you have to admit that it's legitimate to take into account when you see something like that happen. It's, take, it's legitimate to take into account to say you don't often see a pretty young woman dressed nicely stealing a bike in the middle of the park. So the odds that she's actually stealing the bike is probably not the first thing that's going to jump to mind. That's just based on experiences. We determine what is true in life based on two things. By the facts or the data, the raw data, as we perceive it with our five senses. That's number one. But number two are these presuppositions this, and presuppositions are not necessarily inherently a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a grid. It's a set of beliefs that we have about life, about the world, that is based upon our education, our background, and our experiences. We all have a set of presuppositions. And so you have the raw data, the facts, the data that we, that we encounter in life through our five senses. And then you have this grid, this set of presuppositions that you use to interpret that data. 
I read a lot and heard a lot about this George Zimmerman case this past week. One of the best things I read was actually a brief editorial that was written in World Magazine. If you don't regularly read World Magazine, I recommend it to you. It's a journalistic uh, news magazine based upon a Christian worldview. But in an editorial about the case, this is what Joel Bells said. Some people argue that there is no such thing as a raw fact. Everything we know is conditioned by who we are, who taught us, when they taught us, whether we believed what they taught us back then, and a hundred different circumstances. We at World Magazine believe firmly, of course, that while contexts and perspectives may differ, there are such things as raw facts. Although the same fact may look altogether different to two sincere observers, we believe that there is a reality that can be pursued and ultimately nailed down. Indeed, it is that conviction that makes our journalistic enterprise something worth doing. We don't have to settle for a neutered stalemate when someone says dismissively, well, it all depends on how you look at it. Jesus said in our text today, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's an awesome thing to take on in life. How do we judge with right judgment? Well, Jesus gives us a living example of it here, as he, here in John 7, is judged by appearances. He's judged and rejected based on appearances, but not just the appearance, but how his appearance was interpreted by the presuppositions of the people around him. Remembering we started in chapter 7 last week, we saw there that Jesus' brothers wanted him to go up to Jerusalem and do some splashy, spectacular miracles so that he could pull his movement back together and regain those who had left him among his followers and hopefully take the throne in Jerusalem and drive out the Romans and set up the Messianic kingdom. That's the plan and the dream that his brothers had. And Jesus refused to go. That wasn't his agenda. That wasn't his purpose. That wasn't his goal. And so he waited back in Galilee while everybody else went up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. But, as we know, a few days later, about halfway through the week, he did go up. But privately, not with a lot of attention. He purposely tried to avoid the kind of attention that would provoke the authorities. Because, as he said when we saw in the text last week, this was not his time. Not the time that the Lord, had, that the Father had planned But interestingly, when he does go up, not only does he go up privately, but he doesn't go up and do any miracles right away. He goes up to the tabernacle or to the temple and he goes to the outer courts and he begins to teach. And as is often mentioned in the Gospels, as he was sitting there among the crowds teaching, it says that the people marveled at his teaching. Now, if you know the Gospel accounts, this ought to be a little sense of deja vu because When he was 12 years old, during one of the great feasts, he got separated from his parents. And when they finally found him much later, he was sitting in the temple courts, teaching, sitting among the respected teachers of Israel. And it says there in Luke chapter two, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When he later began his public ministry. This is how the people reacted to his teaching right from the beginning, as it's recorded in Mark chapter 1, verse 22. 
They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Not like the other Jewish teachers taught. There was something unique, something powerful, something compelling about the way that Jesus taught. As we know, as John has been revealing to us very clearly, not only did Jesus teach the word, Jesus was the word. And so Jesus taught with original authority, not a derived authority. And that's a huge difference. He didn't, like other teachers in Israel, he didn't quote other respected rabbis for credibility. He didn't even speak and preach like the Old Testament prophets. There was something unique about his teaching that he spoke as God. Nobody else could teach that way. But instead of accepting his teaching, we see here in chapter 7 that the Jewish teachers and the Jewish leaders questioned his credentials. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And they mean their formal studying. He had no degree from the rabbinical schools of the day. He hadn't mentored under great teachers. He hadn't come through the official system of Israel. And so they saw it as audacious that this backwoods Galilean carpenter with no formal training would presume to not only teach, but to walk into the very courts of the temple and hold court. On what basis? Where did he get his accreditation from? I suppose it merits being said in a university town like this that Jesus is illustrating for us the danger of putting too much stock in accreditation, putting too much stock in degrees and titles and education. Not that any of those things are inherently invalid. I have a few degrees myself. <laughs> and I have come through a church ecclesiastical system. I have been licensed. I have been ordained. I have been approved of my presbytery. Those things are all valid if, if, and in, only insofar as that accreditation reflects principles of truth. And that's what they were missing. And so the basic question that this encounter between Jesus and his critics and his opponents, the basic question that this raises for us is the same question that every single human being on the face of this planet has to answer during the course of their lifetime. Why should we listen to Jesus Christ? Why should we listen to him? Back in the 1960s and 1970s, our culture gave up on the concept of absolute truth for the very reasons that we've been talking about this morning. Since everyone's perception of reality is distorted or affected or shaped by this grid of presuppositions, this grid of beliefs and based upon experiences and education and background, since this is true, how could we possibly speak of objective truth? 
Francis Schaeffer, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, lived and was at the height of his his teaching and ministry during that period of time. And so Francis Schaeffer responded to that increasing, growing relativism in the culture by talking about true truth. Sounds like a silly phrase. But in that day and age, it was profound. And it was countercultural. That yes, we all have our presuppositions. We all have our grids. We all interpret through a filter. But... In the midst of this vast ocean of subjectivity that we swim in, there is a source of absolute truth. There is an anchor. There is a foundation that we can build our lives upon that cannot be shaken. And in this passage, I hope you didn't read over it too quickly, Jesus Christ claims to be that source of true truth. The true truth by which we measure all other truth claims. Listen to what he says in verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I did not come up with these teachings. These are the teachings of the one true God. My words are his words. He's claiming that even though he had Nothing in the way of earthly credentials and accreditation. His credentials and accreditation were from heaven itself. And we have eyewitnesses to that accreditation. When he was baptized, remember, the voice from the clouds, the voice of God the Father himself spoke and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. He is the source of true truth. Jesus elaborates on it in verse 18. He says, the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. He claimed to be perfect and to teach perfect truth. But don't we only believe this because we are Americans with our Judeo-Christian European background, our Western civilization. Isn't that why we believe this? How do we know that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be? So many people in history have claimed to speak for God. Why listen to Jesus? How do we know that Jesus is the truth? And Jesus' answer, his first answer to that question His first defense may be surprising because he says that the way that we know that he is the source of true truth is because of the Holy Spirit's work in sinners. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. It's interesting to me that his first defense, the first reason he points to for knowing that his teaching is the truth is to an internal change within us, a change of heart, a change of will. We tend to think of ourselves in three parts, don't we? We have our head, we have our heart, and we have our will. 
We have our thinking, our intellect, our emotions, and the will by which we act upon how we think and feel. We tend to think of ourselves in those three parts. And Jesus is saying that unless, and he speaks in a very primary sense of the change that needs to take place in our will, there's got to be a change in our will, in our heart, before we're ever going to see and understand the truth that he has come to bring. If we humble ourselves and submit to the will of God as he reveals it, and we seek the will of God above all our own self-centered desires, Jesus promises us if we do that, we will know that his teaching is true truth. We will know that his words are God's words. I have often had debates. I, I love my brothers and sisters that work in the scientific field, and I, I have had interesting debates and conversations with them, but it's so easy sometimes to talk with them because we have a f- common point of reference. What's sometimes very frustrating to, to me are talking to people who don't believe, who don't accept Christ as the source of truth, and they're in the scientific field because what they'll try to tell me when, when I debate over scientific issues is they'll say to me, uh, but I find truth through the scientific method. And the whole purpose of the scientific method is to filter out our biases and presuppositions. So when I look at scientific data and scientific facts, I am not corrupted by my presuppositions. I am not in understanding them through this grid of presuppositions. But I am seeing truth for what it really is. And I, once they establish that as the foundation for the discussion about what's true and what isn't, I can't win. Because I'm willing, I'm coming into the conversation saying, I have presuppositions. I am starting with the presupposition that Jesus Christ is the source of true truth and the scriptures are his word and that is going to form my worldview, my grid of presuppositions upon which I am going to look at the data and it's going to affect how I interpret the data. But if you're not willing to admit that you come with presuppositions that affect how you interpret the data, then we're not going to get anywhere. And it ends up usually with me trying to challenge them, what is your source of true truth? And if they keep saying the scientific method, then we just go in circles. Because that's not the basis upon which they form their presuppositions. It's not the scientific method. It's their education. It's their background. It's who they respect as authority. It's shaped by many, many things. Again, there is reality. There is truth. And we have to somehow sort through the presuppositions and the whole discussion in order to come to what that reality is. And Jesus says, I am the way you do it. This is the answer to the problem of subjectivity and relativism. The first step, Jesus says, to knowing truth is faith. Faith. It's saying God exists and God has spoken. And I'm going to submit to that word. 
I'm going to trust in his word and act as though it is true. And Jesus says that when you do that, when you take that step of faith and trust in his word, what you're going to find is that it is true. That it is that foundation. It is that anchor. It is what makes everything else fit together and make all kinds of wonderful sense. As the psalmist says in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That faith is an expression of a changed heart, a changed will. The scriptures teach us that we're born with a stone-cold, dead spiritual heart. And when the Holy Spirit invades our lives, he takes that stone-cold, dead heart, he replaces it with a heart that's able to understand, that wants to understand, that wants to receive the word of God, that wants to submit to it. And when we respond to the word of God in faith, Jesus says, you will know that my words are the words of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And Paul there is just saying the exact same thing that Jesus said, remember, back in chapter 3. Jesus said, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, he said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The Holy Spirit is the only, the only power in the universe that can enable you to overcome your biases and presuppositions to see truth. Faith isn't irrational, unlike what many people will tell you. Faith is not irrational. Faith is the God-given ability to see spiritual reality for what it is. And if you've been born again, then you know that experience of accepting the word of the God, accepting the gospel, having it change your life, and then all the lights turn on. And you begin, and your whole life becomes this wonderful discovery of how what the Word of God says makes all of life make sense, makes all of life work the way it's supposed to work, and you find a real relationship with a real God that sustains you not just in this life, but for eternity. That's what faith is. The Holy Spirit giving you the ability to see reality beyond what your five senses can tell you. And it, what in, it helps you to interpret what your five senses tell you. That's the first reason. That's the reason that we can believe that Jesus Christ is the true truth. It's because the Holy Spirit gives that ability. The second reason that Jesus gives in this text is because he is the one who fulfills the word of God. He is the one who fulfills what the scriptures talk about. That's the point that's behind the dialogue that's at the end of this passage. It kind of seems like something irrelevant that Jesus throws in here at the end. He brings up the law of Moses. And that was common ground between him and his opponents, that the law of Moses was God's word, that God had spoken and that Moses had revealed it. And so they had that common ground. And so he points to that common ground and he raises the issue, who has the right to interpret the law of Moses. Who has the right to tell what God really intended behind what he revealed to Moses? The Jewish teachers or Jesus? Now, the background of his comments here in this last section that we looked at 
is what happened back in chapter 5. And if you were with us back then, you'll remember that Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, unable to walk for 38 years. He healed him and he told him to take up his mat and walk out of the temple. But all this took place on the Sabbath day. And so so instead of praising God and listening to Jesus, what the Jewish leadership did was accuse him of being a lawbreaker, that he had broken the Sabbath, not only by healing on the Sabbath, but encouraging the man to take up his mat and walk home. And you remember at the time, Jesus responded to their accusations by saying, my father is working until now and I am working. He's saying again, I am doing the works of the Father. I am God's image in the world. I am doing what God is doing. It's an amazing, amazing claim to be the one doing the actions of God in this fallen world. And the the Jewish leadership understood what he was claiming because it says they began to plot to kill him. Kill him, why? Because they saw him as a blasphemer a false prophet, a false teacher, and a blasphemer who, as it says in the text, made himself equal with God. And so Jesus here, that's why he calls them out and says, why are you trying to kill me? What's driving your anger? What do you accuse me of? And then he goes from that point and and basically lays claim to be the one interpreter of the law of Moses. The one who could really apply it because he's the only one who really understood all of the thinking behind it because he is the word of God. And so he brings up this issue of circumcision, which again sounds like, wow, where'd that come from? That really out of left field. But what he's, he's dealing with Sabbath breaking and what's appropriate to do on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders are judging him by their standards of what's appropriate to do on the Sabbath. And he's saying, let's talk about circumcision. And he brings up this situation where you know, as a, a, a Jewish male infant was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Well, what if the eighth day ended up being the Sabbath day? How do you choose between two laws of Moses to keep the Sabbath day without working in any way, shape or form or to do the work of circumcision? How do you know what to do? And that's the question that Jesus is raising. But it's interesting how he addresses and resolves the issue. Look at what he says in verse 23. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? You see what he's doing there? He's saying, you don't even understand what circumcision is about. You don't even understand what the Sabbath day is about. There is nothing more appropriate to do on the Sabbath day than to make a person's whole body well, because that's what the Sabbath day points to. The Sabbath, according to Scripture, is a sign of rest. And the Scriptures make it increasingly clear from beginning to end that the rest that's referred to there there is not inactivity, but it's the rest, the shalom of the Jewish people, the great hope of full restoration, of rest from the fall, of rest from the effects of sin, the struggle with sin, Suffering, sorrow, toil. The Sabbath day pointed to full restoration of mankind and of creation. And so Jesus says, I made this man's body well again. I fulfilled the intention of the Sabbath day and you accuse me of breaking the Sabbath day. 
And even circumcision. Why is he raised circumcision? Because circumcision, as the Old Testament prophets made clear, was not about an outward ritual. It was about circumcision of the heart. It's about a change of heart, about regeneration, about God making you alive spiritually so that you have faith, so that you can be justified or seen as righteous in the sight of God based upon faith alone, so that you can, based upon your justification, be adopted into God's family, be united with Christ and be sanctified and made to look and to act and to feel like Christ. That's what circumcision represented, the whole work of salvation, the whole work of redemption. So... Isn't it appropriate to heal a man's body and call him to faith on the Sabbath day? Because that's what circumcision and the Sabbath day pointed to. They were just signs. Signs that pointed to the work and the person of Jesus Christ. He says, you're all concerned about keeping the signs and you've lost the reality that they point to. And again, the bottom line, he's saying, I am that reality. They point to me. I have come to bring total physical and spiritual healing to sinners and to all the creation. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature. He's saying the same thing that John is saying here, that Jesus is claiming here. God has spoken. The prophets brought you his word, but that word was all about me. The signs, the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices, it all pointed to me. I am the final word from God. I am true truth. In the midst of all this subjectivity, all this relativism, all this postmodernism, I am true truth. I am the rock. I am the foundation that you can build your life upon. I am the standard by which you can measure all other truth claims in your life. And so he says, his concluding comment again, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The only way that you can do that, and you're called upon to do it every day of your life, the only way you can do it is for the Spirit to work in your heart to change your stubborn, rebellious, self-centered will and for, based upon the Spirit's work, for you to receive the Word of God through the prophets, through Christ. To receive the Word of God, be changed by it. That is the truth by which all other truth claims are measured. My wife and I had a wonderful time visiting with our oldest member on Friday, Kay Likens. If you don't know Kay, I'm going to embarrass you. I'm sorry, Kay. But she is a wonderful woman of God. She's a great treasure to our congregation. She's in her mid-90s. And if you don't know what the Bible means when it talks about gray hair being a crown, then spend some time with Kay because she has lived with the Lord a long time. She's learned a lot through life's experiences. But in the midst of our conversation... It's just one comment. Kay used a phrase that I haven't heard for decades, I don't think. It's an outdated phrase. It's a phrase you'd never hear in our culture anymore. But she was just making a comment. She said, somebody told me something, but I'm not sure it's the gospel truth. Boy, it's been decades since I've heard that phrase. The gospel truth. And how I long for the day 
when in this culture once again, if God be gracious and send revival, that the ultimate standard for truth would be the gospel. That all truths would be measured by what the gospel says. And that's what Jesus calls us to in this passage. He is the source of true truth. He is the truth. He's the way. He's the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. It's why we're here this morning. And Lord, we pray that as we interact with a world that has lost its anchor, lost its foundation, that's grasping and groping around in darkness, Father, I pray that the light of your truth would shine through your church. Help us to be faithful, help us to be bold, not in our own flesh, in our own nature, but in Christ. And Lord, use us to bring his truth to those who by your spirit you are calling to hear and to understand and submit and trust and obey. Father, thank you for speaking to us this morning through your word. In his name we pray. Amen.